All right. It's awesome to be here with you guys this morning on this third Sunday of Advent, which is the time in the Christian calendar where Christians from across traditions celebrate the anticipation of the Messiah's Advent, which means arrival. So while we might be tempted to go right into the celebration part of December, right, all the joy around Jesus' birth, and even I think a lot of people do that. December is one long birthday party for Jesus. I think it's actually incredibly important that Advent is not the same thing as Christmas. Christmas is the climax of Advent, but Advent is that time of waiting with excitement. It's an entire month that's pregnant with expectation of counting down the days. And of course, the use of the word pregnant there is not a mistake, right? And I'll get into that in a second. But as we start this morning, I want to ask all of us to consider a question. That question is, what are you waiting for God to do? What are the longings that you feel in your life? Maybe your exhausted expectations. What are you holding out hope for in your life or your relationships or in the world? As you think about what that makes you feel, those are the sort of longings that Scripture pours into this Advent season. The New Testament frames the entire Old Testament, all of the waiting for a king, waiting for the return from exile, waiting for the end of sinful rulers and oppressive empires, waiting for the end of sin and death and separation from God. All these things are framed as a waiting for the Messiah. All of human history, the Bible argues, has been one long pregnancy. And the baby is about to come as we read the story this morning. And while I can't personally relate to motherhood or even parenthood at this time in my life, I actually learned a lot about it recently from my sister. She just had her first child about two months ago. And she shared that as she comes into the Christmas season, her perspective on the Christmas story, and especially Mary's experience, has changed a lot. She said the story hits different when you know what it's like to find out that you're pregnant and experience some of the anxiety and the joy of that announcement. When you know what it's like to prepare and to expect the pain of both pregnancy and birth and the joy that comes with those things as well. She said, it also hits different when you are experiencing those things, but you also know the rest of the story of what Mary is going to experience, right? That her child is going to challenge her in so many ways and upset her expectations about God's plans in the world. That eventually her child is going to die right in front of her and then ultimately become her Lord and her Savior It's kind of a crazy thing to think about, right? It's a powerful thought to think of Jesus' mother, Mary, not just as a character in the nativity story or just some vessel for God to bring Jesus into the world, but as a courageous woman navigating the most unexpected and challenging and ultimately rewarding motherhood in the history of the world. Mary is the final step in this family of Jesus, the genealogy that we've been exploring over the past couple of months as a church. It's a story of this family of faithful Yahweh worshipers like Rahab and David and Josiah, who without even knowing his name throughout generations, again and again have been crying out, just like the words of John Wesley's Christmas hymn, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. This has been their longing And Mary's story is the incredible turning point of that story. The transition point from actually, from expecting this Messiah to actually experiencing this Messiah. 
And I know that there's actually been plenty of debate throughout history about Mary herself. And I learned a lot about that studying for this. I'd love to talk about it sometime if you have questions about that. But I also think the best use of my time this morning is to focus on some things that I think most Christians can agree upon about Mary. I think that over the course of her life, she filled three distinct roles within the kingdom of God. She experienced it in three distinct ways. First, she was a brave revolutionary who longed for the Messiah to transform the world. Second, she was a mother wrestling with her expectations about her son. And third, she was a disciple who let her story get caught up in God's redemption story that he was telling. And so this morning, I'm going to explore those three things and look at how each one of them points us to the gospel. But as we talk about Mary this morning, I think we need to clear our minds a little bit. If you're like me, you grew up with different versions and visions of Mary, but they often have to do with peaceful nativity scenes or maybe the peaceful Mother Mary statues you might see around. And that's not really what I want us to picture as we talk about Mary this morning. I want us to picture something a little bit more like this. We have a picture there. I saw this painting for the first time a couple years ago, and it really kind of blew my mind, expanding my idea of what God is doing through the story of Mary. If you look at this picture here, it's called Mary Consoles Eve. We have the mother of all humanity being comforted by the mother of the Savior, who's here to tell her that the curse is being broken, that the snake's head is being crushed. And again, there's a lot of symbolism in this picture. Mary is not the snake crusher, right? It's her child that's in her womb. But she's telling Mary God is fulfilling his promise to bring a seed that will crush the head of the snake. Forget about that fruit that you ate and focus on the fruit of my womb. Because again, as you notice in this picture, Mary herself isn't the comfort to Eve. Mary is pointing Eve to her true comfort and consolation, the baby in her belly, who would ultimately redeem the world and all the brokenness that came through Adam and Eve in the garden. This is the kind of story that Scripture tells about Mary. That's the kind of picture I want us to have as we look at all of the facets of who she is this morning. A woman who was a fiery revolutionary, a fiercely protective mother, and ultimately a person whose lifelong learning about Jesus reveals the gospel that her son came to the world. So as we begin in the first chapter of Luke this morning, we're going to see that Mary's story reveals that the gospel is a revolution. And we're going to start with the announcement of this revolution in Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. We're going to start in verse 26. Luke 1, 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. So then Mary asks how this can happen, because she's a virgin. And Gabriel explains it's going to be a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And that seems to be her only question, because she replies then in verse 38, See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me 
as you have said. And right there in Mary's response to Gabriel, we see to the extent that she could be with the knowledge she had at the time, was ready to trust God with this revolution he was inviting her to be a part of. And it might not be clear at first to us, especially if we're used to reading this story around Christmas time as a nativity story, but there's actually a ton of biblical meaning in her phrase, I am the Lord's servant, may it happen. Of course, she's probably feeling some fear in this moment, wouldn't you, if God just showed up and said, you're pregnant, right? But courage and fear also often come in the same breath, right? She calls herself the Lord's servant, which is a super powerful phrase with a ton of connections to Hebrew scripture. The Lord's servant is not a title for just anyone. It's a phrase that the Hebrew scriptures use to describe people like Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Caleb and Job. People who play a part in crucial moments in the story of the people of God. So to be the Lord's servant is to be called by God for an incredible purpose. One that involves humble trust in his plan. And one that also often involves a great deal of sacrifice and suffering. So when she says, I am the Lord's servant, may it be, it's not a simple yes or consent to his plan. It's an answer that has deep and complex realities in it. She's declaring by saying this that she's trusting God to take care of her through whatever difficulties she knows might be coming, right? There's a lot of potential consequences to this event. She knows there is going to be a lot of pain. There's probably going to be a lot of shame, a lot of difficulty that come to her, right? Not just the pain and difficulty of pregnancy and the pain of birth, but also a calling that was the opposite of how her culture operated and even opposite of how the law talked about the right way to have children was, right? She's trusting God through the reality that Joseph her betrothed would have every right to divorce her and even every right to have her stoned if he wanted to. She's trusting God to take care of her even though she knows that she will likely be called an adulteress and her child a bastard for their entire lives. And the easiest one to miss here is that even if she didn't know how it was going to look like, she was ready to defy Rome in the name of a new king. I think that's the most powerful part here. And that part might not be obvious to us reading this, but it would have been to her as she listened to Gabriel's words. The specific words and phrases he used were very intentional, and she would have recognized them. Because you see, Rome had its own gospel. They used that word, evangelion, the name or the word that we translate gospel. Rome had one of those. It's the good news that spread far and wide upon the coronation of Emperor Augustus the son of Julius Caesar, who was considered a god. And the gospel of Rome was this, the great Caesar Augustus, son of the most God, our savior, has peace on earth. He takes the throne of his father and his kingdom will last forever. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Thank you. Someone's paying attention, right? And Mary was too. For Mary, Gabriel's message as he uses these words to describe her son, it's clear. There is another king who will sit the throne, another son of God most high, a true savior who will bring true peace on earth. Mary, your son is king and Augustus is not. And her reply in Luke 1 shows she is super ready for that. She says, may it be as you have said. 
These aren't words of a quiet spectator to Jesus' birth, but a bold, courageous yes to a revolution. As New Testament scholar Scott McKnight describes the scene, he says, Mary was a tiger waiting to pounce on the moment that God's Messiah would be set loose. That's an awesome picture of what's happening here. And if it seems a bit much to assume that Mary's actually aware that these realities are at play, we're going to read a few verses later to that poem, that praise called the Magnificat. It's the thing that Molly read this morning. And as we read it again, Let's picture this scene, right? Mary has gone away during her pregnancy to stay with her cousin Elizabeth. And as they're talking about what this pregnancy means, she reveals she was absolutely paying attention in the synagogue growing up when the prophets were read. And even though it has implications way beyond her imagination at this time, she also reveals that she knows to some extent what she has signed up for. This young poor Middle Eastern teenager. She turns to her cousin Elizabeth and she becomes the very first person in the New Testament to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. She says this, starting in Luke 1, verse 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones slowly. He has the and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors." Again, she's preaching that good news even to her ancestors that those promises God made all the way back in the garden to send a redeemer to crush the head of that snake and to redeem his people from sin and death, that is happening now. God is doing that. She speaks in the present tense. If that doesn't get you pumped, I don't know what will. In this one short song, Mary manages to pack an entire Old Testament's worth of prophecy and praise and expectation. There are over 27 connections with the Hebrew scriptures in these nine verses. From Genesis to Psalm to Ezekiel and beyond, she's spinning this into the beautiful story of what God is doing now. And perhaps based on one's priorities, this Magnificat is either wonderful good news or terribly threatening news, right? We've seen that play out in history. Not only has this song, this Magnificat, been tied to Christian justice movements throughout history, it's also been banned by oppressive governments. For example, the British outlawed it in Indian churches during their occupation in India. And when their occupation ended, Mahatma Gandhi, who wasn't a Christian, encouraged people to sing the Magnificat anywhere a British flag was being lowered. That's the staying power of the word of God spoken through the words of this young mother. And as the story goes forward, Mary quickly sees more and more confirmation that this revolution is happening, right? This group of shepherds from somewhere else come rushing in to say, we're here to worship the king. She's like, how do you guys know about this, right? These astrologers from far away come to ask Herod, not to to bow to him, but ask him where the real king actually is so they can come and bow to her son. And then she has to run to Egypt because Herod Herod is deeply threatened by this idea of a Messiah, of a new king. She names her other sons after tribes of Israel. 
the people who were liberated from slavery by God long ago. But just like any faithful Jewish worshiper of the time, she also probably had some misplaced expectations about the Messiah too. Like any other Jewish worshiper of the time, she likely expected that he was going to be a military revolutionary. She probably expected that he was going to one day raise an army to liberate Israel from Rome by force. She probably expected, like one of the most popular Jewish texts of the day, that the Messiah would, quote-unquote, purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles who trample her to destruction. So she, just like Jesus' other disciples, probably spent most of her life expecting the Messiah to one day sit on the physical throne in Jerusalem. So if you're familiar with Jesus' story, you know he's about to turn a lot of those expectations inside out. And that's where we have to transition from Mary's role as a revolutionary into her role as a mother. Because Mary's story as a mother reveals that not only is the gospel a revolution, but the gospel upends our expectations. The gospel upends our expectations. And I think this idea of shifting expectations is deeply tied to the experience of being a mother. I know there probably aren't a ton of mothers in the room right now. There are some. You might have experienced that. That's something my sister got me thinking about, again, as she shared about her experience of the Christmas season. I didn't put a picture up earlier, but I think we have one now. Show my sister Mariah, and then her husband Cedric, and their new son Isaiah. This is the cutest picture ever. I love it. But being a new mother, she said, there are a few things that have really stuck out to her about her experience of motherhood and how it relates to Mary. The first one, she said she has this intense feeling of expectation and excitement about who Isaiah is going to be, all the plans she has for him, all the hopes and dreams she has for who he could be. And then two, she says she's been experiencing this intense protectiveness of those expectations. And in her words, she sent this to me in a big, long text. She could have preached this sermon herself. But she says about Mary, like any mother, Mary saw the greatness in her little one and wanted only good things for him. She knew who he could be, what she hoped God meant him to be, and she pushed against what threatened it. Trusting God with a precious tiny life is so hard. I feel viscerally protective as a mother, though I know ultimately it's up to God who he will be, what he will become. I think Mary had to wrestle with that question more than anyone else ever has. I think those insights are so powerful. I think they can help us connect with the struggle Mary must have experienced during those 30 years she spent alongside Jesus raising him throughout his life, right? And those challenges start really early. They start right after his birth. If we look at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 34, she brings Jesus to the temple for the first time, and a man named Simeon comes up to her and says this, Luke 2, 34, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul. My soul, says Mary, right? Like he's he's going to be taking a sword to Rome. Just a few verses later in Luke 2, she watches Jesus, even as a 12-year-old, already full of wisdom that she's having a hard time understanding. She and Joseph lose Jesus on a family trip, and they're scrambling to find him. When they finally do, they find him at the temple teaching. And as they come up to talk with him, this is how he replies to them. Luke 2, verse 49. Jesus says, why were you searching for me? He asked them. 
didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. Some translations say that she treasured these things up in her heart. We're going to come back to that later. Don't forget about that. Nearly two decades after this incident in the temple, Mary's there and helps Jesus facilitate his first miracle, right? She's organizing servants as Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana. But then soon after, Jesus leaves. He goes off on his own. He leaves his family behind to travel and to preach and to heal. But then over time, stories start coming in about the things Jesus is doing. Mary probably starts to hear about his odd disrespect for some of the religious leaders, his tendency to fellowship with Gentiles and sinners. And these things come to her ear. And Mark 3 actually tells us that his family, which includes Mary, started to wonder if he might be out of his mind. At this point, Mary's probably thinking, why aren't you raising an army? Why aren't you marching on Rome? Why are you embarrassing us with sinners and tax collectors? I gave up everything for this. What, what are you doing? <laughs> but when she and her brothers come to him and beg him to come and listen to reason, to listen to his family, this is his reply, and we see this in Mark 3. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. His response to her is that he is not here to raise an army. He is here to raise a new family. He's telling her his mission is bigger than their family's glory or their expectations that if Mary wants to be a part of what he's doing, that she needs to become a part of this new family to humble herself and follow him where he's actually going. He's asking her here to let go of her role as a mother with all these expectations, the idea that she knows what's best for him, and instead embrace that role that started all those years ago when he was 12 years old and she first heard him preach in the temple. He's asking her to become his disciple, to stay with him, to follow him, to learn from him, even if it means abandoning her previous expectations about what salvation was going to look like. And this isn't unique to her, right? I've heard people talk about this passage. Oh, even Mary thought he was crazy. Well, sure, but this is actually the kind of turning point that so many of Jesus' disciples experienced throughout the Gospels, Right? John the Baptist, he gives up everything for Jesus, ends up in prison, and then he asks him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we be waiting for somebody else? And Jesus replies, the sick are healed, the blind see, the dead are raised. Mary's like Peter, who hears Jesus prophesy his death and resurrection and says, never, that will never happen to you. And Jesus had to say, has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. I have to do that. That's what I came to do. Much like those moments of decision, this moment where Mary says, are you out of your mind? Come home. And Jesus says, become a part of this new family. This is her moment of decision. Will she believe her son and follow him as a disciple despite these upended expectations? And the passage 3 actually doesn't give us the answer to that question. We don't see her until she's gone. 
Because Mary shows up next in the order of the stories of the Gospels at the cross. Among the disciples who are there, mostly women, a lot of the men had fled at this point. And she's there watching her son die. Which again, as a mother, I can't even imagine the brutality of that experience. But the fact that she is there tells us something. It tells us that whether it's at this moment, we read in Mark 3, where he says, be a part of this family, or sometime after, she does follow. She does believe, start to give up those expectations and walk with Jesus, even all the way to the cross. And even in those moments as she's experiencing the She is in the process of surrendering her story and what her expectations were to the story that the Messiah is telling, even if she doesn't quite understand what's happening in the moment. And I think her transformation into that discipleship experience reveals the third thing this morning, that the gospel invites us to surrender our story to the Messiah's. The gospel invites us to surrender our story to the Messiah's. And again, we see Mary doing this. We know this because the final time we see her in Scripture is among the early churches in her circle in the first, church, in the first chapter of Acts. We see this here, Acts 1, starting in verse 13. This is the disciples returning from Jesus' ascension to heaven. It says, When they arrived, they went upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Amen? Not just Mary, but his brothers, those people who said he was crazy and came to stop him at this point. They seem to believe. They're here still, even after his death. And the scripture gives us no indication that Jesus revealed himself to Mary physically after his resurrection. Right? There's no indication that she saw him. So she is here, his brothers are here, because they believe the news about this resurrection, about the hope that Jesus had preached. Mary is believing and holding out hope for this kingdom, which her son had now become king. And much like the other disciples, she'd finally come to a place where she's starting to see the full shape of what God is doing and what he was doing when he called her to carry and to raise this Messiah. So as the Spirit comes down at Pentecost, she finally is able to see the true fulfillment of her Magnificat. A kingdom of justice and righteousness that finds victory not through domination, but through the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. And the calling of all of his disciples to sacrifice as well. A kingdom of servants and witnesses. The borders of which are far wider than any of those corrupt worldly empires that she could have imagined. Here, as the Spirit comes over Mary and the rest of the disciples, she finally experiences the full power of that revolution, the wonder of what God was truly doing in the world. And here at Pentecost, her journey as a mother to the Messiah was finally complete, and her journey as a Spirit-filled disciple of the Most High God was finally in full swing. And from this point on, Scripture doesn't mention Mary again. There's some debate about a figure in Revelation, but she's not used by name again here in Scripture. 
the story of the gospel and the kingdom explode from that upper room to the ends of the earth, and Mary's story becomes permanently subsumed in the story of her son and Lord. Now, there's plenty we can infer about her future, right? Nothing explicit in Scripture, but we can assume she was likely alongside John, who Jesus on the cross told to take care of her, and alongside James, her son, who led the church in Jerusalem. She was probably pretty influential throughout that first generation. And even the ideas of her Magnificat praise are echoed directly throughout the New Testament, especially in her son James's letter, right? You read James and all the, the thoughts he has about the gospel. Who raised that guy? Who taught him those things? But she herself in the scriptural narrative becomes one, one among many men and women who participate in that kingdom revolution. They are willing to let go of their expectations and be caught up in that grand story that God is telling through this Advent season, through this Christmas story, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. She allows her story to get caught up in that, and I think that's exactly what all of us as disciples are called into as well. As we come into the Christmas season, I want us all to reflect again on that question that we began with. What are you waiting for God to do? But as we do that, I want you to notice something in the text something that I think is perhaps the key to Mary's journey as a disciple. The key wasn't her expectations or what she was waiting for God to do, but her ability to ponder or treasure these things in her heart. It's included as one of her character traits in the first chapters of Luke as her character is introduced twice in Luke 2.19 and 2.51. She ponders these things in her heart. She treasures these things up in her heart. Which in Greek doesn't mean she thought about how nice it all was. To ponder here in Greek means to take this information in and deliberate within oneself based on this revelation. Decide how you are going to respond. To treasure in your heart. To take these things in, these truths that you're learning, even if they don't make sense to you yet, and preserve them for later. This is Mary's response. She grew as a faithful disciple of God's Messiah precisely because she was willing to ponder and to treasure this good news. To be a person who reconsiders and learns and responds when the gospel is preached. And that includes accepting some of those foundational gospel realities, right? That our desires are often misplaced because of our brokenness and sin. That we cannot save ourselves. That whether or not you're a follower of this Messiah, this Emmanuel, God with us this morning, whether or not you are, the ultimate answer to all of our longings is this good news that Gabriel and Mary brought during the Advent season, that Jesus brought through his life and death and resurrection, the good news that his apostles preached after his resurrection. And that good news is that God is faithful to save his people from their sins, and from death. The truth is that your ultimate hope is in that kingdom, not in the rise or fall of any earthly kingdom or even the rise and fall of your daily circumstances. Our hope is in admitting our need for that Savior, that Messiah. Your hope is in turning from your sin and your misplaced expectations and giving your allegiance to this new king, surrendering your story to his So I want to add two challenges to our original question. 
These are the challenges I think Jesus called Mary to ponder as she longed for redemption. Not only what are you waiting for God to do, but are you willing to let the gospel upset those expectations? And how can you surrender your story to the Messiah's? So those three questions I want you to take with you into this Advent season as we approach Christmas. There's even one umbrella question that I made that I think covers all three. And that umbrella question is going to be our question for response this morning, our time of open mic responses about what God is doing in our hearts and lives this morning. And that question is, what gospel truth is God calling you to ponder in your heart this Christmas? And that can include maybe some of the sub-questions there, whatever else God might be putting on your heart. But what gospel truth is calling you to ponder and treasure in your heart this Christmas season? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this season, that every year we get to re-experience that reality of anticipating your advent, waiting for the good news to come that we do know has come. God, and then celebrate that on Christmas. I thank you for becoming human, for experiencing what we experience. I thank you for giving us your truth in this story of Mary, for allowing her to be someone in whom we can see the gospel and what it looks like for a faithful disciple to respond to you. So God, this morning I pray not simply that we would imitate Mary's faith, but that we would learn from it and discern what steps you have for us in our own journeys, God, as we learn what it looks like to surrender that journey from being ours to being a story you are telling. Help us to see our lives that way this Christmas season, God. And I thank you for giving us a good news that reveals and brings up those ideas in our hearts and minds as we consider who you are this time of year. Thank you for who you are. In your name, amen.